welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome back to another episode of No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment and navigate life together. How are you doing, breathers? Yeah, that's my name for all of you who are taking time to breathe and be in the present moment. I hope you're keeping well and taking care of yourself. If you're tuning in for the first time, my name is Dorothy Oko. Today's quote is anonymous. Quote, no matter how far you have gone on the wrong road, you can still turn around. End of quote. As is our practice, Let's take a moment to fully arrive and settle down by doing a few breathing exercises. Fully arriving is about coming to stillness, tuning in to the present moment. It's about allowing your breath to transition you from what you are doing to this present moment. This allows you to become still and check in on how you're feeling. So let's practice together by being aware of the next few breaths. We will breathe in through the nose, hold to a count of two, and breathe out slowly through the mouth to a count of five. So let's begin. Breathe in through the nose to a count of five. Hold. Breathe out slowly through the mouth. Breathe in through the nose. Hold. Breathe out slowly through the mouth. Breathe in through the nose. Hold to a count of two. Breathe out slowly through the mouth. Welcome to this present moment. We are continuing in this episode with Jeremy's story. His dad's posting in New York has ended and he has returned to Kenya, where post-election violence rears its ugly head and compounds his trauma. Here is Jeremy. You're back in Kenya? And just from coming from JKIA realizing things are different, people are on edge. You know, and when we left here in, actually it was the end of 2003, people were peaceful, it's, you know, it was Kenya. Coming back, you know, people are divided along tribal lines, which is something I didn't understand, you know, we didn't grow up with that going on come to Kilalasho and I meet some of my friends who are still here, still up to the same things. And now they start to tell me the stories of how, you know, in certain places, babies from certain tribes were thrown in pits of fire and, you know, all the gory stories and people were hacked to death in Nakuru and stuff. And you've just arrived. And I've just arrived. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell? So by this time now, the addiction culture, this was in now in Kenya, beer keg, which was very cheap, was now the big thing at that time. There were a number of sharks not far from here. I'm glad they took all that down. But there were several sharks where most of us guys from Kilalesho, now this was the place we'd go drink in these Mabati sharks. Now the counterfeit alcohol now is like readily available in plastic bottles. I'm glad they also got rid of those things. 
So now it's just drowning my sorrow on, you know, how can people do this? My parents now are trying to push for me to go back to college. Because they're like, dude, do you realize you've come back from America with nothing? Thank God, you know, the prison record is something people won't know about. But essentially, you've come back with nothing. I had friends who were in the US, went to university, finished, came back to Kenya, were doing very well for themselves, you know, moved out, of, got places of their own, started having families. And I'm like, at this point, I'm 25. And I'm seeing my life is actually heading nowhere. You could see that? My perception is I went to the US as this little Kenyan traumatized boy. I've come back that same traumatized. There's no growth for me. And I'm looking at now the people I call friends around me. We're in the same boat. We haven't finished school. We're drinking. We're smoking weed. Stealing from our parents, you know. We. And at this point, this is when I started to feel like I'm actually weighing down my family with all this. And so depression now was coming in. There were thoughts of suicide, but I never had that courage to do it myself. So what I would do after benders subconsciously is I would provoke people. I would provoke police. I would find police on the way, try to grab their gun. You wanted them to kill you? wanted them to end it, but it would never happen. I'd either get tossed in a holding cell or get beaten. And then it reached a point where they stopped dealing with me totally. And there's no one at this time who you could talk to? I mean, at this point, I'm talking to my friends who are in the same sinking ship. So it's like we can talk and talk, but there are no solutions. To us, rehab was a place where you get punished, you get beaten. Which in fact, in, in some rehabs we have in this country, they actually beat patients. Try to beat patients into sobriety and that doesn't work. And so now here's where my drinking comes in, you know, my hygiene now is going down. You know, I'm not taking showers anymore. The clothes in my cupboard are decreasing because now my desperation is such that my dad won't send me money. My mom won't send me money because they know what I'm gonna do with that money. So now I'll take my personal belongings. Actually, the first thing that went was my jewelry. I had quite a large amount of jewelry from the US which I bought. That was the first to go. And so now all my material stuff is disappearing, you know. Suddenly I have the clothes that I'm wearing essentially. When I'm walking in the neighborhood, I'm actually invisible because people who grew up with me can't believe that, dude, this is you. Almost looking like a homeless person, but yet you still live in a home in Kilalesho. My, my mom was getting fed up. She's like, you know, we're getting old now. And, and, and I had friends who, you know, their parents changed the locks and, and some of them till today are still homeless. I see a few when I drive around. You know, their parents just gave up and, and changed the locks or moved to shags and it was reaching a point where my mom was about to do that. So for me, agreeing to go to rehab, it was for selfish reasons. Is this the rehab in South Africa? No, no? Homa Bay. This is still Homa Bay? Okay. This is Homa Bay. My intentions to go to rehab was I'm going to chill a bit, they get off my back then. And this is how my disease of addiction is so deadly. He tells me that we can take a break for three weeks and then after that we can go back and it will be okay. But when I go back, the consequences begin. My mom realized, okay, this guy is getting depressed, you know. So she would do things like, give me the car for the weekend. I disappear with it. I come back on Sunday, this car has been knocked to pieces. So no car for the next two months. Going to rehab, I agreed to get them off my back for a while. Things calmed down. And then I also, I'd also blackmailed my mom. And this is now how you hold parents hostage. Mm. I'm like, I'll go to rehab if you buy me a car. Did she agree? She agreed at the time to get me into rehab. Of course, when I came back, there was no car. 
And so for me, that was the perfect excuse now to go in deeper into it because she cheated you. You're not fulfilling your promises. But then looking back now, as I'm eight years sober, looking back now, did I really deserve that car? No. Because even as I was in rehab, I was still getting high. Asumbi is one of those rehabs. There were a few people who were there who did not touch the drugs, they just stayed to themselves. But majority, we were getting high. There were people escaping all the way from Homer Bay to Nairobi. I think only, it's only a drug addict who can make it from Homer Bay to Nairobi with no money. Because it's a, it's a long pace, yeah. first of all, and it's hard to get there to yeah. Nairobi. Which is why they had the rehab there, because you can't get out. Well, you can. Because there's no electric fence, it's just bushes, you can't. But see, the thing is that if you don't know where you're going, the villagers already know this Asumbi place is for mad people. So there were guys who were getting caught. I remember on my third, third night there, there was a guy who tried to escape. He didn't know where he was going. Villagers caught him and beat him up and brought him back. Frog marched him back to the gate. And I was like, you know what, he was thinking of escaping. No, <laughs> that's not gonna happen. And besides, there's weed here. I'll chill. I kind of felt sorry for my parents because they thought, hey, maybe this guy is getting better. But no, you know, they dropped a drug addict at the rehab. They came and picked up that same drug addict Nothing back. Nothing had changed. In fact, the day my mom had picked me up, I was high. Was she surprised? I don't Did think. She I don't think she noticed because the journey was long. And I wasn't, I wasn't like, like, but I'd smoked weed in the morning, you know? <laughs> Came back to Kilalesho, one week, I was only taking weed. Uh, the next, now that weekend, thinking there would be a car in the driveway, there's no new car for me. Big fight with my mom, now I'm going to drink. Disappeared for three days and I was back to square one. Because you feel like you're punishing her. Yeah. For not fulfilling her promise. Yeah. This continued on. Went to another rehab in Parklands, um, which was kind of like, it's almost like an outpatient facility. Like you live there, but you go to school during the day and stuff. And But there I met like-minded people who were not interested in getting sober in one room they're drinking kibao in the next room they're rolling weed in the other room they're chewing mira and this is when i started taking mira and mogoka i was always curious about these leaves like my somali friends are chewing like why are you chewing these leaves for hours like what kind of high does that produce does it get you high it actually gives you an alertness the high is kind of like some kind of confusion because you can sit there chewing thinking about one thing for hours and that's now the high or the stimulation but for me i was i was an abuser from jump i would on in one side of my cheek i'd have mogoka on the other side i'd have mira what is mogoka it's a cheaper derivative of mira okay and it's dangerous because when you chew mogoka you I'd say it's like the cheapest version of cocaine. Okay. The, the effects are almost the same as cocaine in that you won't sleep, you won't eat. And you can see I'm already a slim guy. But mm. at that time I was bordering on half this size. Mm. And my mom couldn't understand, like, you know. Because the thing I was trying to stay away from was the booze. I was like, you know, when I drink booze, I crash the car, I get into fights. So now you're just doing drugs. But if I chew oh, these drugs and I smoke weed, and mind you, I'd never been arrested for weed ever. So to me, I was like, you know, I'm not a junkie. I'm not an, and this is now the denial. I'm not a junkie, you know. A junkie is someone who shoots up heroin. But I'm taking right. all this mixture of stuff, you know. I'm not sleeping. I'm not eating. And my mom couldn't understand what's this you're taking. It has no smell, but you look odd. You know, mm. she'd tell me, and I walk in the door. You look odd. And so this is what now I was taking at the rear. So the consequences kept getting bigger. I would, I mean, there were times I would try to be a social drinker. You know, go to a club like regular people. But as soon as I had a certain amount of drinks in me, the violence, 
abusing people at random. I remember there was a time I was in a club in Westlands. I started a fight with these uh, Indian guys of uh, a girl who was their cousin. And it wasn't long before I ended up in the boot of their car. They all, they, they all sort of ganged up on me. Ganged up on me, threw me in the boot of their car and... Um, no one saw them do that? Nobody did, but see the thing is that I provoked them, then I followed them to the car. Which is when they decided to teach you a lesson. Yeah. I remember they took me as far as almost Kino, it was somewhere above from Westlands. They were planning to either ban me or they were planning to do some hania because I could hear them planning. And this was when I was starting now to get wind of, hey, they're in the boot of a car, you're not in a club anymore, you know, and reality starting to hit. They had planned a lot of heinous things to do to me as soon as the first guy opened the boot with all the strength I had in one foot, kicked him in the face ran across Waiyaki Way, mind you, their cars, don't know how I missed that, and ran into a field somewhere and hid there for about three hours. Because they came out looking? Yeah. So in the early wee mornings, I remember I had to hitchhike. I, I spoke to this guy, um, my tattoo driver, I'm like, listen, I've been beaten up, my money's been taken, just... Help me just get to Westlands. I can walk home from there. He was kind enough to do so. And and I got home. And that was just one of the incidents, you know. There were a lot of incidents where... My mom basically told me now... The only ultimatum I'm giving you is rehab. And this is now rehab in Cape Town. Because I've tried everything in Kenya. There's a time they took me to my grandmother's place in Kasarani. This is my dad's mom. And next to Kasarani, there's a slum called Babandogo. It wasn't long before I was there drinking with those guys. You would find your way out. Yeah. Try all these geographicals, I find a crowd, you know. And so I had to be removed. And actually this whole idea came from, from a counselor. I was seeing a very good counselor uh, here in Kenya. She also went to the rehab in South Africa. She's the one who gave my mom that I Because I'd go for counseling sessions with my mom in tears and I'd go to those sessions, hi, I'm like... And you're, your mom's only surviving child. Yeah. But I would tell my mom, I'm only going to these sessions if you allow me to go, hi. Because I'm not, I'm not listening to all this when I'm sober. So I'd go there, hi, and this counselor tell my mom, this was exactly how I was. But I needed to be removed from this whole country, from this whole place, and start life anew in Cape Town, and that helped me. Oh, is that where you saw the light in Cape Town? That's for me, but that came later. What happened in Cape Town? I sat, this was the first time I sat in a rehab without drugs. <laughs> so I'm seeing things clearly for the first time at age 27. Mind you, when I was booked into this rehab, I came, I'd broken my ankle in two places the previous night before the flight. So did your mom travel with you? My mom traveled with me as a body because I was out, I was, I was passed out. So for me, this is like, this, the story leading to rehab is like my icon moment because it shows me clearly. Once I pick up a drug or a drink, I lose control because um, the hours before the flight, my mom is like, I'm preparing for this flight to Cape Town. I'm going out to get the tickets and stuff. Don't go out. Don't go to your friends. Just chill in the house and we go. I didn't listen. Went to see my friends. Downy and Kilalashu. Hey, by the way, I'm going to rehab. Oh, you're going to rehab? Man, we have these bottles. Let's send you off. And in my mind, <laughs> When I left the house, I was like, you know, I'll just have a few beers, like smoke a joint, and I'll come back. That whole story just shows that one is too many, a thousand is never enough for me. And with my illness, I don't do tipsy. I remember, like, there were times my friends would come with the, the small to 50 bottles, and I'm like, that's all you have. I don't want it then. We drink that, and then 
Because for me, there has to be follower. We have to drink until we don't know what day it is. And so anyway, a long story short, met with these friends, went on a bender. My mom is calling me like crazy. Mind you, I have the car parked outside. Before I know it, I, I regained some consciousness. The whole house where we're partying is quiet. Everyone has passed out. I'm looking at my phone, 40 missed calls, you know, mom. Okay, my house is, my, my, my car is outside the house, um, outside the gate of the house. There was a concrete wall. I climb on top of this concrete wall, drunk. Not, because you didn't want to use the gate. Well, the guy who has the keys has passed out. And I can't, his parents were in the house, but I'm not going to wake up his dad, so... I'm going to jump this, scale this wall to get to my car, to get to my mom's car. So I'm scaling this wall, which was easy on one side. On the other side, it was much deeper and had a trench, and that's why I broke my ankle in two pieces. I did not feel a thing. Driving in my neighborhood, I don't know what happened. Instead of making the turning to go home, I drive to Westlands, and I'm in a nightclub dancing on a broken foot. Then something just came into perspective. Now we need to leave. This was now my last drunk driving episode. I drove on the wrong side of Waiyaki Way from the, the mall roundabout, drove on the wrong side all the way to almost ABC, missing easy coaches and all those buses coming down at that time, you know, just dodging them. And, and the reason I know this story is because one of my friends sent me an email when I was in rehab said dude the last night you were here we would have all died and i was like what do you mean we were all in your car i can't remember that so finally we get to kilalesho because of my drunk driving episode every everyone who was in the car now is sober <laughs> just because of all those stunts and those near-death misses and by the time we've reached to the main road of kilalesho people have scattered out of my car I'm now driving home alone. The doors are just flapping like this. Because they didn't close them. Yeah. People were just in a hurry to get out of this death trap. Reached home. My mom is there crying in tears. I, I will never forget that day. She's, she's... And mind you, I'm drunk out of my mind, but I remember seeing her face and the worry in her face. And she's called the counselors from Parklands there. Thanks to... The counselors, they're the ones now who drove us to the airport. Your broken leg is still there. Leg is swelling up, but I have no idea what's happening there. I've blacked out, but my counselor from Parklands was like, this guy is getting on that flight. And that's how you got on the plane to Cape Town? Because that counselor was like, if Jeremy stays here for another week, the way he's going, we'll bury him. He has to get on this flight. And the only reason they let me on the flight is because at the time I still had a diplomatic passport. Because if you have a regular passport and you show up at the it's terminal closed. high, they won't let you in. But he has a diplomatic passport and he has a medical visa, because that's how you go to rehab in South Africa, a medical visa. So, oh, this guy must be really sick. Get him on the plane. And so I woke up the next day in a South African rehab, guys were speaking, I think it was Koza or Zulu. I was like, what kind of weird language is this? Where am I? Oh, yeah, in Cape Town. And so that's where my recovery journey began. As far as seeing now the light was now actually those the, the, the family meetings we had with me and my mom before she came back to Kenya and her telling me that, you know, this is your last shot. This rehab is not cheap. If you come back to Kenya and relapse, we'll have no choice but to change the locks and you become an invalid because we can't keep on doing this for 16 years. And when she said 16 years, that's when it hit me like a ton of bricks. Like, gosh, it's been 16 years of this. I didn't realize. And at this time, I was 26. had my 27th birthday in rehab first sober birthday mm. in 16 years, which wow. was weird. I remember my dad calling me. The first year he really didn't, he was very skeptical. But what he told me was like, dude, you're in South Africa, Cape Town. Realize that 
at some point when you leave rehab if you choose to go back to that life in south africa you'll come back in a box so that was his fear and that's what he told my mom i've no objection with him being there but if he relapses there you know in that country with the xenophobia and stuff you know it won't be pretty but for me you know it was just looking at you know broken leg consequence and that was a menial consequence considering everything had kind of escaped and and the scar on your face was that part of the accident this is a part of fights okay because you fought a yeah. lot you used to fight a lot so what was the turning point in Cape Town for you at this rehab because you've been to other rehabs the turning point for me was seeing people who are in my position with like long-term addiction getting sober getting their families back and starting new successful lives like we used to go to the recovery narcotics anonymous meetings and alcoholics anonymous meetings and i won't lie you know when when someone would raise their hand like because you raise your hand for sobriety time someone would raise their hand the 10 years sober I would go outside you know at the time I was still smoking cigarettes that was like the last addiction I kicked I'd go outside and smoke a cigarette and I'd look at the car they're driving and I'd say okay this guy's driving a BMW he's 10 years sober like it's not a lie because <laughs> in the beginning when people raise their hands for like 20 years I was like no these people are lying that's a lie but once I started going to the meetings hearing their stories and then hearing because I thought my story was like Like for a long time I didn't want to share this same story I was telling. Mm-hmm. I was too ashamed. But once I had stories, for instance there was a guy who's still a good friend of mine to date, he's still in Cape Town. He was high one night and was going through psychosis. He was using crystal meth at the time. He was going through psychosis and his dad came and confronted him and he stabbed his dad with a screwdriver in the heart. His dad survived but with health problems and 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 so I'd have talks with people like that like how do you live with yourself after right. doing that and you know there were people whose stories like they got high they were behind the wheel killed people but they're sober you know 10 11 years you know I'm like if people can get passed through stuff like that then I shouldn't really complain I'm actually mm. very blessed mm. to still be here so that's what gave you the motivation to want to do something to stop the big question for me also was not just stopping it was now what do i do with my life because a lot of the the, the 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 kids now who are my age have families careers these were things they were planning in high school in high school i was either planning to be a rapper or you know a drug de- like stuff that doesn't have a future really so now i told my counselor you know what now from here because she's the only one who i really told my story the one who had referred you or the one in cape town the one now in cape town mm-hmm. that i met at the ria and she was like you know listening to your story you know have you ever considered counseling you know and then she was, and my only question at the time was does it pay well and she was <laughs> like do you see the cars we're driving out here like, we're making good money from this but we're helping people there are people who are making money off rehab clients and not helping them for me that that goes against the principles i have learned so this is where the lights came on i can actually use my story to help people eventually i started working at the rehab where i was once a patient so that gave me a lot of hope this wow. was three years down the line so you're in cape town for three years seven you in Cape Town for 7 mm, years. I was there for 7 years. But then what those 7 years you're not a patient. I was a patient for 2 years. Right. You do your 21 days in a primary clinic which essentially is a hospital. Get your health back, you know, because most of us reach there when you know we are in terrible state. Get your health back, you know, if if you're depressed and stuff and you know have like bipolar you see a psychiatrist you know they do assessments you know oh he needs medication stuff like that and then for some after 21 days they go back home 
for others you know going back home means you're going back for, for other people like their brother uses their sister uses so for them going back home from rehab is not suggested yeah. for me i couldn't come back to kenya because the relapse factor was too high especially if i came back to kilalesho after you knew it. and i knew it right. i knew it i even told my mom you know if i come back to kilalesho it's a done deal now i go on to secondary treatment and secondary treatment now is like it's like a living house yeah a community of people fighting for their sobriety mm. and you just live like a family of course there are random drug tests because you have freedom but you can go shopping you can go to the mall you can go to school you can go to work and come back to the assistant counselors who are always on duty in the house if they suspect you of using or anything they'll test you if you test positive you later be kicked out or some discipline action will be taken depending on the gravity this is where i called home for almost a year and a half because eventually they were like dude you're too comfortable here you need to they hope to yourself that you need to go out there and spread your wings because right. i know a guy who stayed in uh, secondary treatment for 7 years that's remarkable <laughs> isn't it but i guess it's fear mm. of what happens when i'm out in the world mm. this is like a safe space mm. so mm. after one and a half years you had to go out into the world had to go out into the world but still i mean this is cape town by the time i'm in secondary i got a car so I'm moving around like the thing about addicts and alcoholics in recovery is yes we are sober but we know where the stuff is we know where the liquor store is we know where the right now if i take a walk with you outside i can tell you just by looking at a guy that guy has weed really yeah so we have this sixth sense when it comes to where is the drugs where is the alcohol so by this time i'm in cape town but i know there are drugs right next to the train station next to the rehab there so to keep myself safe i went to live with another recovering addict who was like he was like 15 years sober at the time you find that um at these recovery meetings you can actually say you know i'm leaving rehab you know does anyone have a place a safe place for me to stay you know and you pay rent for the room but essentially it's a safe place mm. and so i ended up staying with him for i think 2 years in between those 2 years i got hit by depression because after my third year of uh, sobriety or just around my third year milestone of sobriety Uh, my dad started coming back into my life but it wasn't at the speed that I thought it would be at the time yeah I still hadn't found work at that time Where your mom was just sending you money for survival my mom was sending me money so I'm like so what's my purpose really because now I'm going on 28 and I still can't fend for myself and it was a very cold Cape Town winter So I was just in my room just thinking thinking and just got into this dark space of depression but before I did anything ridiculous found my counselor I'm like listen I'm in a very dark space is there a place I can go so I was taken to um the psychiatric side of the rehab Kenilworth Clinic rehab they have the addiction side and they have the psychiatric side which is also the depressive if you're suffering from depression you can right. go there And I went there and I came to learn that first of all my depression is very natural because I've been flooding my body with all these chemicals for so many years. So they depress your system as well. Now real life is hitting me, you know, my expectations is just as a human being in general are coming into question. Then there was also a sense of feeling that I've lost so much time. And that's why I met another counselor who told me, you know, you're using and that's when i came also to learn about the depression side of my using drugs you're depressed now because you suppressed your body with chemicals for so many years there was never time to sit down and process what's actually going on and the most valuable information they gave me is all this addiction stuff is parallel with depression and trauma those are the things that fuel these things 
and that made a lot of sense to me and so even till today you know um like this year hasn't been a good year for most people but if i'm in the house sitting and thinking and thinking and also my dad passed away this year as well so now you've got another trauma had you made peace with your father yes but i feel like time ran out when we were reaching to kind of the good see my when i would sit in rehab my idea would be okay now i'm a counselor i have a rehab project that i'm trying to set up right now in, uh, kenya. Here in kenya so my idea when i was now looking long term was you know my dad's retired i've set up my rehab things are going well now we can spend time together as father and son the 16 years that you've lost and really talk about and also for me to explain to him why some of the things because he would always ask me why why are you doing why why and in rehab i came to find out the whys why i was doing certain things you know what were the whys from my dad's side yes um from my dad's side was just like why do you continue to mess up don't you have any willpower but i learned in rehab for me as a as an addict and alcoholic the way my mind is wired my willpower tells me to keep going when it comes to substance that's my willpower whereas other people can have a beer and think ah oh, this is too much for me my willpower tells me order six more so there's no stopping there's no stopping so these were the kind of the conversations I would have loved to have with him unfortunately he got sick uh, late last year mm. and passed away almost end of february but i think one of the joys for him had actually just returned back to college actually just down the road here at hti okay. and was doing hospitality management but i'm more of a chef i love being in the kitchen and stuff so i used to visit my dad at um, aga khan with my chef's uniform on and he was sick you're struggling to talk but he was like are you enjoying what you're doing and i was like yeah i'm enjoying what i'm doing and he was be like yeah I'm, i'm glad that you're finding purpose in mm. life that's that's what i wanted for you oh you know you know that's going to cry mm. and then he passes on then he passes on and you know at his funeral i have family members looking at me like is this guy going to go crazy now see the thing that most people here don't realize is in south africa especially once i started working with the rehabs then because mm. i worked with four rehabs four mm. different rehabs during the five years as a counselor i would have patients who would go get sober call me hey i'm two years sober hey, congratulations go, you know on the flip side i'd have parents call me like you know you discharged so and so uh, by the way he passed away are you coming for the funeral he relapsed he committed suicide oh. and so during those phases i would always ask myself okay we're getting people's lives together but at the same time there's this death circulating and i realized now that when my dad passed away that all that death and also i had a friend in south africa who got murdered mm-hmm. after he got sober after 17 years of struggling got sober for about 6 months you 6 7 months got his family together you know his life was starting to grow then he just got killed by, by 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 burglars of uh, a laptop so i'd ask myself why is this death to death and then my counselors would tell me this is preparing you for because eventually you're going to go back home So here you are back home. So here I am back. Has died. It's covid times. What's your reaction when you hear the news of my father passing? Yeah. It was devastating simply for the fact that I felt we hadn't had enough time. I felt like and I remember when when they brought his body to his home i remember speaking to him and just telling him that you are here to see what i'm about to do here 
but this is what it is and I know in spirit now you'll get to see what your son will be for people but yeah that is so sad and so you bury your dad has that given you a new resolve as to what you want to do because you say that you want to do it for him well with my dad's death and then covid just coming now because covid came like i remember we buried him it was february 29th beginning of march covid oh we're locking down and it just brought to me the forefront of because the ria projects you know i had that on hold for at least the next three four years mm. let me finish with school and stuff when my dad passed away and covid came those two sort of tragedies showed me that hey you know life is short might as well just now hit the gas on these things that you're able to do you know not too much at once but now kind of speed up things and then also before my dad passing on more training last year was losing three friends in this neighborhood mm -hmm. from addiction one after the other so you're seeing how addiction is destroying lives and is that what led you to want to be a counselor now is that what inspires you to want to counsel it inspires me to want to counsel because also a lot of the good counselors, a lot of the legendary counselors are older and are re retiring and so also there's a void with that. Counseling, I mean, my counseling is with addiction, but I also understand mental health, which is... With COVID, yeah. you're seeing more cases of, and people not being able to cope yeah. with all this lockdown and how life is changing, mm. so there's need. Mm. If you were to talk to parents, what would be your one word for them? I know you're lucky to have your mom, by yeah. the way. You're, you're lucky that she never gave up on you. Mm. But what should you tell other parents? I'll tell other parents, first of all, not to give up on their children, no matter what ages they are. Because like I said, some of these homeless guys that I knew growing up are now in their 40s. But it doesn't mean that they can't change. Secondly, counseling is an important thing. It's an important tool of healing. I don't understand why in Kenya still, oh, you're going to counsel in a week. Like, yeah, right, there's a stigma attached yeah. to it. Like, How do we wrong? break that stigma then in society? I think just to realize that it's 2020, the world, some things have changed, but some things haven't. And the mind can only take so much trauma and so much pain in silence. Because what happens with people who experience trauma and, and hold it in and not express it to anyone, and I'm talking from my own experience, is right. it builds up inside. And in my case, I turned to drugs, which I thought was an outlet that works, mm -hmm. but not in the long run. And so eventually that trauma was now bursting out and coming out as violence. Even when I was in prison, I realized some of the most violent criminals in there mm. is just because they're misunderstood. You're 35, you could have a family. Do you want to have a family? Definitely, but I'm trying to find my footing in life first and solidify what I'm trying to accomplish as a man. And these are conversations I have with my mom. My mom is like, I want grandkids. And I'm like, yeah, but you know, I'm still living with you. Like, let me gain my independence and start my own path with this career of counseling and once it takes off then that can come into play mm. but i don't want because uh, i've seen it in rehabs i've seen young patients young adult patients 24 25 they're now in rehab but they have two kids the mom has to now take care of the two kids right. in the house and i'm like I tell my mom, I want to give you grandkids, but I don't want them to actually become your kids, mm. if that makes sense. Right. Jeremy, one wish you would have, what would that be? Because drug addiction is very prevalent in Kenya, it's just that people don't talk about it. It's very common in well-to-do middle-class families, no one ever talks about it. How do we get society to talk about these problems and deal with them? Because I think that we don't talk about it. 
and therefore we don't deal with it. Therefore there's trauma that every family is going through because of drug addiction, alcoholism or whatever. I think my first thing is also prevention is better than cure. Not everyone has to land in rehab. It's a difficult uh, question, but let me try and answer. See, in my, I, I look at my earlier, younger life. I mean, I was book smart when I wanted to, but it didn't make sense. I was good at fixing machinery, like I could put your whole laptop together without a manual or anything. Creative, I also liked painting, you know. These were talents that were shunned. And of course, with my funny clay that got me expelled. Because I remember some friends would tell me, you know, you can write movies with that imagination of yours. The thing about parents nowadays is my kid is fed, my kid has a roof, that's it. They don't really speak to their children and find out what their passion in life may be. And so there's still that old school mentality of I'm taking my kid to business school or he's going to be a lawyer. You're planning your kid's future without their say-so, which creates a lot of pressure and anxiety. Parents need to speak to their kids. My mom did, it's just, and this is no blame on my dad. It was just as a young man growing up, I was like, you know, mom, you're telling me a lot of good advice, but where's dad's input? Where's my dad's input? So fathers need to get involved. Yeah, yes. fathers need to get involved, especially in their son's lives. I mean, daughters, mm. daughters are good with mom, but with sons, you need that fatherly hand in all your 16 years of addiction and growing up and being here, what's the one thing you know for sure? Well, one thing, and I also tell young people in my neighborhood nowadays, because I speak to some of them, and I tell them, you know, addiction is like fast, pressing fast forward on your death. It's just a matter of when. And addiction doesn't discriminate. I remember I'll be drinking in Kawangwari, in the slums of Kawangwari, a place called Congo. I'd be drinking Chang'a there, and on one side there would be an MP's cousin. On the other side would be a slum dweller, and mm. I'd be like, well, it doesn't matter where we've come from, we're all messed up and hurting. And that's another thing, pain doesn't discriminate either. What helped me, and what continuously helps me in my recovery journey is talking. Just speaking. I tell young men especially, even just my cousins, don't hold it in. Do not hold it in. Find someone to talk to. Find someone to talk to. Find someone to talk to. Wow. Because also what COVID has brought, it's brought in a whole lot of new addicts and alcoholics who last year weren't in that position. And I've seen it for myself. Because I'm, I mean, I'm in recovery, but I have fun. I have safe fun. But you don't drink at all. See, for me, the people who I avoid are the people who drink like me. So even like some friends, Friends who I grew up with, they'll call me, hey, we have a party, nini, nini. I'm like, first of all, I know these guys are getting drunk the way I got drunk. So I'll say, yeah, I'm coming. Then I hang up. Because I know they're drunk, they won't remember this conversation. Right. And so who are, your, yes, and who are your close friends right now? Well, I have one close friend who we actually met when I had a small stint of college um, at Kenya Methodist, and we used to drink together. Um, in downtown Ngara, and for him, he's called Andrew. The shock Andrew got that Jeremy's in rehab. I need to pull up my socks because my family doesn't have money to take me to Cape Town. Mm. So I might as well just leave it alone because he was following me. He realized his family can't sustain it. You know, he's from a family of uh, three other adult boys, you know. They can't take me to rehab, so... I might as well just stop this. And he also knows um, my mutual friends who have passed away from addiction. He and, and he was a source of encouragement once I got to my second year of sobriety and started making phone calls here. He was like, bro, I'm proud of you. Like, wow. And you have motivated me to also go now on this path. So is he sober now? He's sober. He's sober. He's sober. And you're brave, I find. Even when you sent me the note and saying I'm willing to talk, it takes a lot of courage to do it. 
which gives you the courage to, to, to want to talk about it. A lot of people will be hiding and saying, I don't want to talk about it. Well, I got a lot of practice at the alcoholics meetings and the narcotics anonymous meetings, because there, I mean, you're sharing your story in no less than 60, in front of 60 people. And bear in mind, addicts, alcoholics, the time you'll hear us really talking is when we are high, but wow. when we are sober, we don't like to speak. But that gave me training for that. And I also spoke in, in prisons as well, in South Africa, um, just as part of service, you know, you don't get paid for it, but if it can save one or two inmates' lives, what I share. And, and that's also a program I'd like to start here as well. Because now we're getting a lot of inmates who are in prison from addiction related issues. What would you hope your story and the sharing of your story, and I really appreciate your vulnerability and courage. What would you hope your story would do? To give them a ray of hope wherever they are. I mean, there are people who have used drugs for 30 years, 30, even 40 years. Mm -hmm. By the time you reach to those kind of years, you feel, well, there's no turning back. You know, but you can. You can. It's mm. never, if anything, the message on my story to propel is it's never too late to turn around and say this is enough. This is going nowhere. I need a new way of life. It's never too late. Thank you so much, Jeremy. It's been such a joy chatting with you. You're very welcome. And all the best with, um, you start your own rehab because mm. I think you have what it takes to do it. Mm. And may you help many more families to get their loved ones out of addiction. Thank Definitely. you. Thank you. Welcome. That's all today in No Head, where we learn to live in the present moment and navigate life together. Thanks for listening. Join me again next Tuesday and please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. I'm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Also, please share the link with your friends. You can also follow me on Instagram, Podcast. That wraps up what I have for you today. Catch you next time, my friend. May you learn to pause, think, and feel before acting out. May you have non-judgmental compassion for yourself and others who struggle with addictions of any kind. And may you never give up. Bye-bye. <laughs>